<laughs> I heard some folks singing that. Their uh, faces might not have been proper to show at church. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was shocked when I saw the snow this morning. Uh, if you would please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We'll be finishing up the chapter. We've been in this chapter for quite some time now, so we'll be, uh, we'll be finishing it up. Sometimes in the midst of great tumult, you find little quiet moments. And in Mark chapter 12 so far, we have been watching the sparks fly, haven't we? We've seen a lot of conflict covered in this chapter between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, and long ago in Mark's gospel, probably it was about a year ago when we were there in chapters 2 and 3, we saw another spat of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And by the end of it, the leaders have determined that Jesus needs to die. That's as early as the first part of Mark chapter 3. And we've seen the off and on battles throughout Mark's gospel. And here in chapter 12, uh, the leaders of Israel have been inflamed by their hatred for Jesus through chapter 12, and it will be a part of what leads to his execution in just a few chapters. So we have all of that on one side. Uh, and then, over the next three or so weeks, we're going to be in chapter 13. We're going to see Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where he talks about the tumultuous events that will take place. He's going to talk about the end times, and what that will mean for heaven and earth. It's going to be a wild ride, and so you'll have... We'll have that on the other side of it. Uh, these uh, catastrophic events and this tumultuous time in Jerusalem. And right there, sitting in the middle of it, nestled down like a bird on a nest on a face of a rock in front of the ocean, we have a story that slows down. It's not to say it doesn't have anything to say about what comes before or after it, but it speaks with a softer tone. And so... We can slow down with the author here. We can slow down with Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for what he's included here and read this story. Uh, let's go ahead and read that in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. And we'll finish up our chapter with that. Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people. This is talking about Jesus. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he said to the disciples, or excuse me, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, put, uh, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is for us to gather together as your people and to sing your praises together, to pray together, to hear your word read, and now to consider your word here in Mark 12. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to do this, Lord. Thank you so much uh, 
Lord, you have given us everything, and we give back what you have given to us, Lord. And in this moment, we give everything over to you, Lord. Pray that you would free our hearts and minds of distractions. Pray that you would help us to consider what you are saying still today through your word, and that you would instruct our hearts. Lord, pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would give us a joy that this world doesn't have to offer. Lord, I can't accomplish any of that. Not in my own heart, not in the hearts of anybody. Lord, but you by your Holy Spirit are with us, in us, renewing us, and so we pray that you would work. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we consider this passage. I think the main call here is for us to be generous from the heart. We're going to look at this in two ways through this. We're going to consider Jesus and the rich, and then we'll look at a widow and her offering. We're not going to divide this passage up by verses. Uh, We're going to instead look at the themes here, and in that we're going to be going back and forth through the verses as we go. Let's consider Jesus and the rich here. Uh, Verse 41 tells us that Jesus goes and he has himself a seat, and where he's at is, if you'll recall, he's been in the temple debating with the religious leaders. He's still there. In fact, in chapter 13, it's going to talk about as he's coming out of the temple. Jesus is in the temple and his disciples are, some probably sitting by him, others are milling about. And they sat there in the midst of a bustling and busy crowd. If you'll recall, the time of year that this is taking place is the time of the Passover. This is one of the three great feasts of Israel, and in fact, it's really the pinnacle of them all, so it's, it's the main one, and people are coming from all over the place. Uh, you've got people, Jews coming from Alexandria, Egypt, for instance, who would be coming from North Africa over. Uh, in fact, in Acts 8, on, after Pentecost, a little while after that, we see Philip the eunuch, uh, excuse me, Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. He's coming from Ethiopia. So you have people who are coming for this pilgrimage here and for others um, from, from Africa. You've got people as far as Rome probably coming from the northwest. And you've got places like Greece and Asia Minor, north and then towards the east. You've got people probably coming from Susa in Persia who are coming for this festival. And normally there was about 50,000 people living in Jerusalem at this time. And when the Passover would take place, we have estimates that it would swell to about about a quarter of a million people. So there'd be four or five times as many people pouring into the city. And you can imagine that religiously devout Jews, as they were coming to Jerusalem, well, where would they go? I have to imagine they'd be going to the temple. Especially if they have come with an offering, uh, they'd be coming to the temple. And so Jesus is sitting here in the temple in Jerusalem, and there are people just washing back and forth like waves through the temple. People are coming and they're looking, people are coming and they're making offerings, and Jesus is sitting there and he's people watching. The text tells us he's watching uh, that there's a lot of rich people that come in and they make great gifts. Uh, there's a word that's used three times in this passage, and it's translated a little differently throughout, but um, in verse 41, it's, it's called the treasury. 
And then later it's called the offering box in verse 41. It's used again. It's called the offering box, at least in the ESV here. And most likely this word used is talking about these 13 receptacles, essentially. There were these, there's a main offering box in the temple where all the money would go to uh, when all was said and done. But throughout the temple, there were 13 of these uh, money cans. I don't know exactly what you would call it. They were trumpet-shaped. They were made out of metal. And people would come and they would put their offering into it. Then it would be taken from there to the more permanent storage. And Jesus is probably sitting down opposite one of these and watching people come and throw their money in. You, know. <clears throat> you can imagine if, you know, they didn't have you know, our, our paper currency. So if you had money that you were throwing in, it was made out of copper, silver, gold, or some sort of metal. You can imagine if you throw coins into this big dish that's in a trumpet shape, it's probably going to make some noise uh, when it lands. Uh, it reminds me of eating out at the Mongolian barbecue in Okemos in Michigan. Uh, they, if you've ever been to a Mongolian barbecue, you've got workers kind of around this big circle uh, grill, and they've got these sword kinds of things they're using, and they're chopping up the food, and they're cooking it, and back and forth, and it's usually, they make that a pretty loud and bustling sort of place, and a lot of noise and bravado, and they got a tip jar there, and if you put a dollar in it, it's got a bell by it, and you can, you know, ring the bell, and they're like, Yay! you know, they're cheering, and they're, uh, there's fanfare that comes along with, with giving there, and uh, certainly I think we see that in the temple. Jesus actually corrects uh, some of the religious leaders because they, they sound trumpets when they go and they make their gifts. Uh, you can imagine it would have been a spectacle to see people coming and giving gifts. And Jesus is there and he's watching. He's probably not the only person watching people come and make their gifts. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine some people probably needed assistance. You know, I don't, I don't know if you could bring a donkey into the, into the temple, but some people were giving such great gifts, I, I bet they needed at least some other people to help them carry it. Uh, not so with the widow in our passage who came up at that very moment that Jesus is watching. Uh, no need for a donkey to carry her money. Uh, no need for a friend to help her dump it in. She comes up with two small copper coins as an offering. Now, the coin that's mentioned here in the Greek is called the, the lepta. And it is the coin it's that, that circulated in the area of Israel. Probably was used in Syria as well. But it's, it's the smallest coin available on the market in trade uh, in this area. And the value of a lepta is one 128th of a denarius. That doesn't mean anything to you. But a, a denarius was what somebody could expect to get for a day's wage. So if you were to work a full day, going rate was about a denarius. So 128, uh, you'd need 128 leptas to make a denarius. And uh, just as a side note, Mark also mentions that it's uh, two of them make a penny. Uh, the penny that's described there is the quadrants. I know this seems a little tedious, but the quadrants is a uh, Roman coin. So this, again, gives us a little hint at the kind of audience Mark is writing to because he's mentioning the Jewish coin that she gives and then he translates it to a Roman currency, which tells us that probably the people he's writing to 
aren't familiar with Jewish coins. He's probably writing to a more Gentile audience who are not living in this area. He wouldn't need to translate it if he was writing to people who use that currency every day. It'd be like if I told you that it's worth 100 pesos. And you'd be wondering, well, how much is that worth? You know, I'd give you the U.S. dollar if I was talking to you all. And anyway, side note, just a little thing in passing. Somebody did the math, though, on the lepta. This is the Jewish coin here. She gives two leptas. And somebody does the math here. And what this means is the offering that she gives is worth six minutes worth of work. That's how small this is. One lepta would be about three minutes worth of work. And two leptas would be six minutes worth of work. That's how much she gives. These little copper coins. I think if you were standing behind her, you probably wouldn't have heard the noise of it hitting the trumpet. But God heard it, and Jesus saw it. And in God's providence, we're taking time today to consider these six minutes worth of wages that this widow put in this offering box 2,000 years ago. It turns out that these are the two most consequential leptas in the history of leptas. And it's because of the heart that gave these coins that we're considering it. And the lesson that Jesus impresses on his disciples and us through it. Jesus calls his disciples over to come and listen to him. He points out the widow and makes a statement that I think would have shocked them hard. In verse 43, he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. You know, she gave more? Well, not in a quantitative sense. Uh, she probably gave the smallest offering that day. Uh, but Jesus gives her a commendation here. And he commends her in comparison. He says that she gave more. More than whom? More than all of the rich people who came contributing that day. More than everybody who gave that day. And it's because she gave 100%. Uh, they gave far, far less than that, even though they did give much more numerically. I want to reread verse 44 here. Uh, they all contributed out of their abundance. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. We're going to look more at what he's saying about the widow here, but I want to consider the lesson for the rich that he says here. Now, I have to imagine if one of these guys that had put in a year's worth of wages, for instance, had heard this, he might have been offended. And he said, hey, I put in 365 denarii. Isn't that worth anything? You know, we don't have a response from Jesus to that hypothetical question. Uh, but I do think there is some lessons for us as we think about the short shrift that Jesus gives to the rich in comparison to the widow. I think one lesson we should take from this is that God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need my money. God is not up in heaven fretting about how much cash is going to land in the offering plate. He does not operate like our government sitting on $31 trillion of debt. God isn't in debt. He doesn't operate in the red. God isn't concerned about whether or not he's going to have enough of anything to make it tomorrow. In that sense, God is the most carefree being in the universe. God is the happiest being 
in existence. He is fully satisfied in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Beyond that, because he created this world and everything in it, he kind of owns it, right? It's all his. There is not a single thing that we own that God doesn't still own. Have you ever found a book or maybe a kid's coat or something and you open it up and you find a name in it that uh, this belongs to so-and-so? Uh, or perhaps you've found a lost pet that's got a collar on it, that's got an address or a number to return it. Well, there isn't a single thing or a single person in this world that doesn't have an invisible tag on it that says, mine, please return, sincerely God. Everything belongs to God. Every single last scrap of this planet belongs to God. And it is owed back to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. All of it belongs to him. Every single bit of it. God is not in dire need for our money. He is satisfied. He has everything he needs. Anything that we have, we are simply stewards of. It is something that God has given us to steward well for his glory. We can use that uh, for our enjoyment and our needs. Uh, but we do all of this in the perspective that everything we have is his. Uh, another implication of that is that we never put God in our debt. We never give something to God that then means that God needs to do something for us in, in a kind of a one-for-one one correlation. It all belongs to him. I think there's even more in this passage as we consider what's being said here regarding the rich. The widow is commended, as we've seen, and the rich get the short end of the stick in comparison. I think this is all the more striking when we consider what has just been said before this. A little while ago, we were in verse 38 and 40, 38 through 40. Jesus is rebuking the scribes. He says, And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Uh, the scribes here, they loved the praise of man, and they would have, it says here that they devour widows' households. Um, they would have gladly preyed on this poor woman if they felt like they could get gain out of her. The religious leaders of Israel were relatively well off. That was on a spectrum. You know, I'm sure the scribes and the Pharisees, they were at least solvent, um, somebody like the Sadducees would have been fabulously rich. Uh, the people generally, at this time, viewed financial blessing as a sign of God's favor. And so you think, in terms of religious leaders, if they could uh, achieve religious praise as well as financial prosperity, in their minds they had the best of both worlds. Uh, but again, Jesus takes a different slant on it. He understands it differently. He rebukes their love of money and their love of the praise of man. Uh, and in Matthew 6.24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
uh, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're going to have to choose in our hearts which God we're going to worship. Will we worship the God of gain or will we worship the God of the Bible? We've, we can't wholeheartedly chase after both. Now, I don't want to leave you with a lopsided impression of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, I want to say that as well that Jesus doesn't condemn the rich simply for being rich. Uh, certainly in many ways today we are the richest people in the history of the world. Uh, in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 to 3, we see that in Jesus' company there were women who traveled along with Jesus, they had means, and they ministered to his material needs and his disciples' material needs. I think we can assume that Jesus was grateful for that. Uh, we see in all four Gospels the mention of Joseph of Arimathea. He was rich, he was a follower of Jesus from afar, and Jesus is laid in his tomb. He is reported in all four Gospels, and I think commended in that. Uh, there's more examples. We could look at 1 Timothy 6 and Paul's words to the rich in this age, which do include a warning and do include positive encouragements. So al although we are not to worship or to serve our wealth, we should be good stewards of it. We've considered for a little bit Jesus's, the implications of his teachings to the rich. Now let's consider this widow and her offering. The condition of widows in the ancient world was precarious. If a woman's husband or family had been prosperous, or if she had a good network of relatives or children, she would have security. She'd be in a good place. On the other hand, if she didn't have any personal wealth, or her husband was simply a day worker when he lived, and let's say perhaps she either had no children or her children didn't seem to care to take care of her, then she would be in trouble. Uh, a woman in that situation in that day was in serious trouble. There were no social programs in the Roman Empire or in Israel. Uh, there wasn't a social security program. The only thing that was close to a social program that they had with security was taxes. You could, you could bet on taxes being pulled from society. Many women found themselves in this hard strait. Uh, the needs of these women did not escape the attention of God. There are multiple provisions through the law of Moses for widows in society. You see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, provisions within the household of God to take care of widows. God cares so much about women in this condition that both the Old and the New Testament make provisions for them. And certainly we should care as well. And as Jesus sits and watches the events of that day, he notices this woman coming and making her offering. She tosses her money into the trumpet box and she moves on. We would have never known about that offering that day, except Jesus saw it and he mentioned it. There would be nothing in it that would have made news or been written down by famous historians the only reason we know it is because Jesus drew the attention of his disciples to it and ours to it today. Now, Jesus commends this woman in her giving. As I mentioned, he does it in comparison. She gave more. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. 
Here we see that with giving, as with so many things that Jesus teaches about, it is a matter of the heart. First and foremost, God is not after your money. God is after you. Even more than all we could ever give to God in terms of time and money, he is looking for us to give ourselves over to him, to give all of ourselves to him. Now, as the outflow of our true worship of the creator and not the creature, we do serve him with what he's given us in this world. But it's not because God is in need. Rather, God wants us to show our true devotion to him through the way we spend our time and our money. Our priorities will reflect those things. Now, certainly we could fake it. We see the religious leaders faking it. They give a lot of money with a bad heart. See the Pharisees, and they are so stringent in their tithings that they're going to their vegetable gardens and they're going to their herb gardens to make sure they give a tenth of the basil they grew over to God. Uh, They were rigorous in tithing, but ironically, they had kept their entire heart back for themselves. They gave 10% of everything except their heart. They didn't give one-tenth of 1% of their heart to God. They were good at faking it. And we don't want to fake it, uh, but just because we don't want to fake it doesn't mean we don't want to do the good thing that we're called to. We do give of our time and our money, and we don't do that for the praise of man, nor because it'll earn us a place in heaven, nor simply because, well, that's what God calls us to do and we better do what he says we should do. We give to God because of him, because of who he is, because of our love for him, And uh, we give back to him what he has given to us. We can never give to God what he doesn't already own. This is uh, true in our call to generosity in light of creation. God owns everything. Uh, This call to generosity is also true in light of our redemption. In creating us and the world around us, giving us everything he has, God has given us motivations to generosity. And in giving us his son, his most precious son, uh, we find another motivation. Uh, He has given us his son, and so it's right for us to give our whole hearts and lives back to him. So our hearts should be open to God and generosity, open to generosity to God and to his people. Now, I don't think the direct application of this is simply to go and do likewise, I don't think the direct application is for all of us to empty our bank accounts and give everything away. Uh, Rather, what we're seeing here is a commendation that she has given all, and we are to see that uh, her heart is what we're looking at here. Uh, And the reality is, in our giving, sometimes it will genuinely cost us something. Be open to the needs that God puts before you, even if it causes you to stretch. On the other side of it, I want to also encourage you from this text that no gift is too small if you give it with a good heart. I think this is not only true financially, but it's also true in the ways that we serve one another in the church family. It is very tempting and it's very easy to discredit the acts of service that we have as inconsequential. And so sometimes we think so little of it that we don't even do it because we don't think it's worth anything. I want to tell you that an act that could take you as little as six minutes 
could be the means by which God would encourage somebody that belongs to him. Perhaps at 2 a.m. you can't sleep, and so you pray for somebody. That doesn't seem very consequential. doesn't seem very important. But God may be pleased to answer that prayer and bless somebody and do more work through that six-minute prayer than anything that's going to happen on Capitol Hill that entire week. A small prayer in the hands of the Almighty God can be used mightily. Think about the power of texting somebody with a verse or a word of encouragement or writing a small note to somebody. You know, I could spend 20 minutes preparing a sermon and you might spend 20 seconds preparing a text to send a verse to somebody that you're thinking about and the Lord might reach that person through your 20-second text message more than I can in all of my preparation. I don't mean to downplay the preaching of the word. I just want to encourage you that the Lord is able to use you. Able to use the small things that you, things that are small in your own eyes, that you would do for him. His word is powerful. It doesn't have to come out of my mouth. I want to encourage you that there is nothing that you do for the Lord that is wasted in his providence as well. It may be small in your eyes, but it's not small in his. Do not discount the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you. In all things, God is after our heart. And he invites us into the work that he is doing in this world. He will use our time, our gifts, and yes, even sometimes our finances to bless us through blessing others. The rich in our passage parted with some things. and The widow parted with all things. Generosity is a matter of the heart long before it's a matter of dollars and hours. Let's be generous from the heart. I want to encourage the men to prepare for communion. Please uh, prepare for communion. And Maggie, if you'd come to play. Uh, we're